So again, uh, the text can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 260 and in the following Jesus Bible on page 324 and 325. So I'll begin by reading from 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 through 12. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hands of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line he spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Amran, in Aram, of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants of David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer, and brought them to Jerusalem, and from Bethah, and from Betharathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, David, King David took very much bronze. When, when Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also David, King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Now reading from 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15 through 18. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahulud, was recorder, and Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoda, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's, and David's sons were priests. And reading from Second Samuel chapter 10, verses 8 through 13, and the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and of the men of Tob and Maaka were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. 
And the, the rest of his men he put in charge of Abasai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, last week, if you weren't here, uh, it seemed like I had a mental breakdown about three quarters of the way through the sermon uh, where I was ranting uh, and raving about the, the future and how the future is actually hopeful. I went on uh, about how you've been sold a lie, that you've literally paid money out of your pocket for a deceitful narrative that breeds fear and despair about the future. Y'all remember that? I think you probably do. Several of you asked me about it last, uh, during the last week. Well, right after the sermon, Scott came up to me. And Scott said, he told me to say his name. I told him he was going to be an anonymous. Uh, he's like, just say my name. Scott came out, up to me and he said, do you actually think that the United States is in a good place? That we're headed in a good direction as a country? And I laughed at him. <laughs> no. That's, that's not... Um, what I said, uh, if you ever hear me talking about optimism or hope about the future, know this. Any nation or organization or community or person that does not bow the knee to Jesus will burn, quite simply. So where does my hope lie? I actually am very, very hopeful about the future, but where does my hope lie? What am I actually hopeful about? So let's get back to the problem, to the tension that we talked about last week. We know that God has promised to make all things right, but we don't see that yet. Jesus is already king. He's seated on the throne. He's ascended to the heavenly throne and sat down, but we do not yet see his kingship in full on earth. And that tension, that already but not yet tension, he's already the king, but we don't see it in its fullness. That tension leads to great concern. It leads to pain. But despite all that, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this. You like to take notes Look in the back of your worship guide. You'll find this text printed for you from Matthew 6, 25 and 23. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. Every one of you, every one of us, lives with responsibilities, with concerns, and the anxieties that come with them. We do worry about the future. We worry about the kids and the people under our care. We even worry about ourselves. And yet Jesus says that the forward progress of his kingdom is more important, more primary, more essential for our lives than even food and clothing. Food and clothing, which is often some of the stuff we're worried about, how are we going to pay the bills? Food and clothing are secondary to his kingdom. 
Now, Dave Ramsey says that there are four pillars that need to be in place in your budget and in your life. Food, shelter, clothing, and utilities. Those are the four most important things that you need to provide for. But Jesus says, you seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. All those other things will be taken care of. He'll provide for our needs. Now, I love Dave Ramsey. I follow all his financial system, but I love Jesus more. So I need to know if God's kingdom and his righteousness are more central and more important than any other provision and any other anxiety inducer in my life, what does it mean to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness? I have to know that. So here's a a series of statements that will collectively define the kingdom of God for you. Here's your next blank. We're going to get closer and closer and closer as I'm defining the kingdom of God. Here's your first blank. The very notion of God's kingdom is rooted in the idea of God's rulership or kingship. The very notion of God's kingdom is rooted in the idea that God is king. He is ruler, God's rulership. Can't have a kingdom without a king. Kids, let me ask you all a, a, a question. It's a real hard question. It's not. It's it's pretty easy. In God's kingdom, who's the king? Go ahead, Joe. What's that? Him. That's right. In God's kingdom, God is the king. God rules over God's kingdom. So anytime you're talking about God's kingdom, you're talking about something or someone that God rules over. God's rulership. Okay? Let's hone our definition in some more. Here's your next blank. Kingdoms are traditionally made up of people who inhabit a place. You think about a kingdom, you're usually thinking about a people who inhabit a place. So when you refer to the kingdom of England, who is their ruler? Somebody's going to have to say it louder. The queen of England, that's right, she's, she's the ruler. You could have said parliament too, possibly, but queen traditionally is what you would say. And whom does she rule? She rules over a specific people who inhabit a geographical space. A kingdom implies a ruler who rules over people in a place. So also the kingdom of God. God rules over his people in the places they inhabit. Okay, got, got it thus far. But who are these people? And what are these places that they inhabit? Who is God's kingdom? Where is God's kingdom? Here's your next blank. The kingdom of God is a heavenly reality that is progressively taking root on earth. The kingdom of God is a heavenly reality that is progressively taking root on earth. Kids, there's another question for you. Where is God's throne? That's right. Jesus went to heaven. He sat down on the right hand of the Father on the throne in heaven. And each week in the Lord's Prayer, we pray this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom, God's rulership, is uncontested in heaven. Is there anybody in heaven that bucks God's rulership? No, his kingdom is there 110% in heaven. But every person on this plane, every person on the planet who submits to God's rule, they are also a member 
of his kingdom. That is our hope, is that the kingdom that is in heaven will descend to earth, that God's rule will take root in people's lives and then in the places they inhabit. So is the kingdom on heaven or is the kingdom on earth? It's both. Jesus is king in both places. His resurrection and ascension have made that clear. Jesus is king, but we see his kingship in its fullness in heaven, but partially and increasingly here on earth. There are people and places on earth where you can see Jesus' kingship very clearly. And we hope to see that more and more. But how does that progressive transformation occur? How does God's heavenly rule descend to earth and spread here and now? That's my hope. That's my view of the future. That God's heavenly kingdom is taking hold and spreading progressively on the earth. But how does it happen? Here's your next blank. The kingdom of God manifests itself on earth when Christians live out the righteous character of God. When Christians live out the righteous character of God, the kingdom of God manifests itself on earth. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. As you live out the righteous character of God, as you live like God and love like God, that has an impact on the people and places around you. As you are living according to the kingship of Jesus, you will act and speak in ways that change the world around you. This is how the kingdom comes. Now, here's your last blank on these five. The kingdom of God expands as the rule of God over us personally impacts the people and places around us. As the rulership of God in your life changes you, that will have an impact on the people and places around you, and thus the kingdom of God spreads. As you submit to Jesus, obey Jesus, and love Jesus, How does that impact the people in places around you? It looks like other people being saved, other people submitting to King Jesus. It looks like people's lives being changed and the world being changed because you and they live righteously, because they and you speak righteously, because we represent the agenda of Yahweh God. This is how the kingdom of God spreads. What does all that have to do with these texts that John read for us this morning with all these difficult names, these Reports of battle and bloodshed and diplomacy. That doesn't sound like what I'm talking about. Well, let's dig into that. Here's your next blank. God's kingdom project began with Abraham and Moses. It began way back long ago with Abraham and Moses. And it experienced great progress under King David. And it continues today. The kingdom project began with Abraham and Moses experienced great progress under King David and continues today. So when Jesus comes on the scene and is constantly talking about the kingdom, he wasn't innovating. He was talking about the same things Israel was supposed to have been doing all along. The kingdom started with Abraham and Moses. It made great progress, though, under King David. And that's what we're seeing in our text today. Here's your next blank. Under David, the kingdom made progress not only through military might, but also through nations bowing the knee to Israel's king. They made progress through military might, but also through nations bowing the knee to Israel's king. Now, I'll grant you that much of these two chapters is bloodshed. We'll get back to chapter 9 next week. We see a lot of military might here. And when you look at how the Bible talks about the end of days, when Jesus returns, there is much bloodshed that will occur then as well. 
When he comes back, there will be nations and communities that oppose him, and he will treat them much like David treats his enemies here. But in the midst of all this bloodshed, we see something different. We see a nation allying itself and giving itself over to the king of Israel. Look with me back at chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. We're going to jump all around in these two chapters, so you can just keep your Bible open. Chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. Why? For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to Yahweh, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So Toy, the king of Hamath, sees two things. Man, Israel is strong. (laughs) I don't want to have to fight that guy on the battlefield. Don't want to mess with him. And two, he beat my enemy. He beat Hadadezer. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This is standard diplomacy. You can't beat him, join him. But there's something worth paying attention to here. This isn't the only time we've seen a nation look at Israel and say, I can't beat this. I'm going to fall in line. I'm going to make myself a covenantal uh, 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 vassal state to them. This has happened before. You remember when Israel left Egypt? After the plagues of Egypt? A lot of the people of Egypt said, you know what? Your God seems stronger than our God. We're going with you. And so there was a mixed multitude of Jewish people and Egyptians leaving Egypt at that time. Then in Joshua chapter 9, there was a whole tribe that was, they were marked to be destroyed, the Gibeonites. But instead, they struck a covenant with Israel. They heard the tales of Yahweh's might. They said, no, we want to we join up with you guys. With Yahweh God, it seems as though there's always an opportunity to repent. To bow the knee to the king. To reject our old alliances and allegiances. Say, no, I'm with you now. I'm going to join your kingdom rather than get steamrolled by it. And the same mechanism continues today. It's your next blank. When people surrender their lives to the king of Israel, they become kingdom members. When they bow the knee to Jesus, they become kingdom members. So the question every human being, including all of us, have to answer is, who rules our life? Who's in charge of me? What king do we fear? Who sets our priorities, our goals, our calendar? You know, see your values, look at your budget and your calendar. That'll demonstrate who's in charge of you. To be a kingdom member is to so trust Jesus that we cede control of our lives over to him to recognize his unfettered power as well as his goodness like David and to bow the knee and say, Jesus, you're in charge of my home. You're in charge of my relationships. You're in charge of my mind, my mouth, my body, my work. You are my king. To be a kingdom member looks like every morning waking up saying, Lord, you've given me another day. What's it for? What do you have for me? What can I do to see your kingdom come? And what does that look like? Here's your next blank. It looks like this. Among our people and places, we work to enact the justice, peace, and equity of our king. 
among our people and places, this is what it looks like to seek the kingdom. We work to enact the justice, peace, and equity of our king. When 2 Samuel describes the kingdom of God under David's rule, how is it described? Look back at chapter 8, verses 15 through 18. Verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahituv, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were priests. What was the kingdom of God like under David's leadership? He was a king who cared about his kingdom holistically. He cared about justice. He cared about people being treated equally. And he cared for their spiritual needs. He has an army. He has clerks and recorders. And he has priests. As a king, David cared about the whole person, the whole society. What he was doing was he was working to undo every effect of sin in as much as he was able. What about King Jesus? What is he like? He healed people's bodies. He challenged abuses of power. He fed people. And he also set their souls free. He was fighting every effect of sin in the world and in people's lives. Here's my point. Your next blank. Kingdom members look at the broken world around them and seek its ultimate spiritual good while not neglecting civil order and earthly need. Kingdom members look at a broken world and seek its ultimate spiritual good while not neglecting civil order and earthly need. But note, one of these is more important than the other. Jesus said, seek the kingdom and God's righteousness and your food and clothing issues will work themselves out. If we only concern ourselves with earthly need, or with civil order, then we've missed the boat of God's kingdom. But we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We cannot neglect earthly need. We cannot neglect justice and equity and civil order. Why? Because King Jesus addressed those things. He was a better David. Jesus cared for people physically. Uh, He cared for them socially. He cared for them emotionally and spiritually. And to walk in the way of Jesus is to do the same. This is what I mean. When you hear me talk about the message of the gospel and the effects of the gospel, this is what I'm talking about. We have to have both. Here's your next blank. What is the message of the gospel? It's this. Kingdom members tell others of Jesus' kingship and invite them to follow Jesus. We must be about this work. Kingdom members tell others about Jesus' kingship and invite them to follow him. But the effects of the gospel follow. Here's your next blank. We show others what it looks like. When Jesus' rulership is taking effect. We show people through our lives and our homes and our relationships what it looks like when Jesus' rulership is taking effect. When David is king, the city, the world under his care improves. It becomes more just and more civil. Why? Because he submits to the kingship of Yahweh God. And the result is, listen, David makes the world more like heaven. He makes the world more like heaven. The heavenly kingdom is descending to earth. And when Jesus is king over us, the world under his care improves as well. So let's localize it. 
Your home is the kingdom of God. This place, this space, is the kingdom of God. Any place where Christ's followers have authority and influence, there the kingdom comes. I mean, Jesus is king everywhere, but in your home, in your church, in your cubicle or office, you recognize the kingship of Jesus. You speak of his kingship, and you bring his kingship into effect. And so we aim to make those places a little more like heaven. We want them to be just places, places of goodness and peace, places where the name of Jesus is magnified and where people are set free. So when people ask me, do you really think there's hope ahead? How can you say that the world is not getting worse? It's because I've seen your lives. It's because I've seen your homes. It's because I've seen your sanctification, your growth, what God has done in you and through you. I don't hope in the future of the world. I hope in the future of God's kingdom on earth. The progress and expansion of God's kingdom continues regardless of what's happening in the world around it. And now here's where the rubber meets the road. Your next blank. Seeking God's kingdom is hard work. Being a kingdom member, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is hard work. I mean, let's be honest. If Abraham started this thing 4,000 years ago and Jesus took the throne 2,000 years ago, God's kingdom is a slow burn project. This isn't a slapdash overnight sort of uh, thing. But why is it taking so long? Well, the first reason is opposition. Here's your next blank. Opposition has been and always will be a problem for the kingdom until our king returns. Opposition has been and always will be a problem until Jesus comes back. I mean, that's the whole story of 2 Samuel 8 and 10. Nation after nation opposing David's reign over God's kingdom. And I can't help but think of Psalm chapter 2. Look in your worship guide. I've got it printed there. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, his Meshiach, his Messiah, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Seeking the kingdom is hard because there are other kingdoms vying for your affection, your attention, and your allegiance. There are other kingdoms that want you to serve them and want everyone to serve them. Other people, other forces, and other priorities that want to crowd out the lordship of Jesus in your life. And if you won't follow them, If you profess Jesus as Lord and not them, they're going to try to make you miserable so that you quit following Jesus as Lord. Even our flesh does this. It's not just Satan and demons and the world's systems and earthly kingdoms. It's our own flesh that craves sin, that loves to break the law, that loves to self-aggrandize itself. Quite frankly, to go back to Matthew chapter 6, our love of food and our love of clothes can get in the way of prioritizing the message and effects of the gospel. 
So opposition from the flesh, from the world, from the devil, it makes kingdom progress difficult. That's not the only challenge we face. Here's your next blank. The progress of the kingdom happens under the leadership of very broken and sometimes even apostate people. The progress of the kingdom happens under the leadership of very broken and sometimes even apostate people. I mean, it seems like every other week there's another headline about a failed minister of the gospel. And to be frank, sometimes those headlines are so lurid and so depraved that it calls into question whether they were ever Christians at all. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, one character rises above them all as an amazing example of faith in the kingdom battle. And his name is Joab. Let's look at it. Chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. 10, 8. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tov and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai's brother and arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the, arm, for, the, for the cities of our God. And may Yahweh do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians. And they fled before him. Wow. What an amazing story of faith. So Joab and his men are surrounded on both sides. He comes up with a quick plan. And he tells his men like William Wallace on the battlefield, be of good courage. Let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may Yahweh do what seems good to him. And then he charges into battle and they defeat their enemies, even though the odds were stacked against them. This is like Braveheart, Lord of the Rings kind of stuff. You could make a great movie out of this. But let's see who gets a gold star from a year ago. I preached a sermon about Joab. Anybody remember who he was? Anybody? Here's some, some muttering. He's son of Zariah. Yes, the text does that. He's a cold-blooded killer. He killed one of David's allies in cold blood. He's so bad, this guy, who does this great thing in this text, that on David's deathbed, one of the last things he tells his son Solomon is make sure Joab dies for his war crimes. This Joab is a bad dude. But yet, he does something really powerful for the kingdom here in this text. The progress of God's kingdom is hard because human leaders sometimes do great things for God and then they fail us. Peter denies Jesus. Some of Paul's own fellow missionaries walk away from him and from the gospel altogether. Second Timothy 4, Paul said this, it's in your worship guide. He says, Demas in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He writes this from prison. This is the sad reality of God's kingdom. Often, kingdom leaders fail us. Sometimes they even fall away from the faith. I had a pastor in high school who committed adultery and was defrocked. Uh, I had another pastor when I was in college, got caught up in a money scandal. As a pastor myself, I've watched my own colleagues crash and burn left and right, pastors, elders, church leaders. That makes this work difficult. 
God saved me and our church's leaders from the same fate. These failures demoralize and discourage us in the work of the gospel. But it also serves to remind us of who our king really is, of who our leader really is. God's leader ain't me. It's not our elders. It's King Jesus. We don't trust in men. We don't trust in the might of men. We trust Christ. Here's your next blank. The pain of these realities will likely make us doubt whether we're really making any progress. The pain of these realities likely make us doubt whether we're really making any progress. You see the opposition on the outside? You see failure on the inside? And you start to think, this kingdom thing ain't working. Everything's going to fall apart. What's interesting is in the middle of all these battles where David seems to have such victory, he wrote a psalm. And you'd think it'd be a psalm of hope and power and victory, but it's not. In the middle of the battle, we hear David struggling deeply with the battle that was going on. Turn with me in your Bible, Psalm chapter 60. We're not going back to 2 Samuel, so you can just keep your finger in Psalm 60. We're going to read the title, which is original to the psalm, through verse 3. And then verses 9 through 11, we'll come back and read the rest of it in a moment. So we'll read the title through verse 3, and then 9 through 11. Psalm 60. To the choir master, according to Shushan Eduth, a meek tom of David, for instruction, when he strove with Aram Nahariam and with Aram Zobah, and when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So this was written sometime in the timeline of chapters 8 and 10 of 2 Samuel. What does David say? Oh God, you have rejected us broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You've made the land to quake. You've torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You've made your people see hard things. You've given us wine to drink that made us stagger. Verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. David, in the middle of the kingdom war, is having a very real struggle. Because the kingdom of God moves forward in fits and starts. It takes three steps forward, two steps back. It's hard work. But David doesn't only have pain. He doesn't only have doubt. He has hope, too. Here's your last blank. Seeking God's kingdom is hard, but hopeful work, because the promises still stand. It's hard work, but it's hopeful work, because the promises still stand. So here we find ourselves again. Which narrative defines your view of the future? Which narrative most shapes your faith, your hope, your worldview? For David, despite his pain, despite his struggle, despite his doubt, he went back to the promises of God. So let's look at the rest of that psalm, back verse 4. After he says, you've given us wine to drink that made us stagger, verse 4, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. 
God has spoken in his holiness. He's promised with exultation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. He's talking about tribes of Israel. You belong to me, but Moab, Moab's my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. He says, I love you, and they, they're nothing. They're nothing to me. So verse 9, David says, Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So David, the king of Israel, the ancestor of Jesus, struggled with this stuff to the point he sounds mentally fractured. It sounds like he's contradictory. He's confused. Well, that's the tension of living in a kingdom. We see opposition. We see leaders failing. We see the difficulty of the work. And yet we keep telling people, Jesus is king. Trust him and he'll change your life. He'll change the lives of the people around you. He'll change the places where you live. And then when you tell them that, they might kick you in the teeth. Or they might ignore you. Or they might listen and believe and be saved and be transformed. This is the hope of the kingdom, that the Spirit is here. We're not alone in the battlefield. The Spirit is here. You have God living within you. You don't need the Ark of the Covenant traveling around with you. You are the Ark. You are the throne of God. You are the kingdom. And so as we go, speaking of our king and bringing about his kingdom, the effects of his gospel, he intends to change the world through us. So which narrative do you believe? The one where God wins in the end? The one where God has already won? Do you live your life in submission to the ruling, reigning king of heaven and earth? Do you live in a way that's making the earth more like heaven? That's the kingdom life. It's a hard life, but it's a hopeful life. Here's another way to ask it. What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of emotional space do you want your brain to inhabit? Do you enjoy fear about the future? Do you enjoy despair or pessimism or realism or fictitious romanticism? That's not what God has for you. God has big promises that fly in the face of so much of what we experience and see, and he wants us to live out of hope. A hope that Jesus can change people, the hope that Jesus does change people. In fact, he's promised to do it. Not only when he returns, but also in you and through you. So seek God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask for humility. We ask that you give us love for you and your name and for our neighbor. Lord, may we be more concerned with our neighbor's ultimate spiritual good than anything else in their life. But Lord, help us to show them what it looks like to live under Jesus' rulership. To be people who care about their earthly needs as well. Their relationships, their home, their heart. We want to be a kingdom movement. 
of people who change the face of St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana, the United States, and the world. But our hope is not in the world. Our hope is in you, your intentions, your plans. And so we submit ourselves to you, recognizing that it is only through your power that salvation comes, not through the might of men. It's not through our efforts or our stick to It's through the work of your Spirit. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would show up, that you would show off your power and your grace in us and through us, that you would make the world more like heaven. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.